0: This is Film Tank, Tank, Tank,
1: Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no now. Oh, I don't know if it's
2: I like it. You know, we sit here like a couple
0: of regular fellas. We're about to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way he said Poor baby is starting to
2: lose it. They won't know what they're looking at, but
0: why they like it.
2: Hello there again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 227 of Film Tank. As per usual, Alex Diekman here with you, along with my friends, Nick Cheney. Hey! Toussaint Egan. Hello! Hello to you. And uh, our friend who is regularly on the podcast, who is joining us again, Sam Shamora.
3: Hello again.
2: Hello. Hello. I know this is this is our first episode that you've been on. Uh, we've been doing it via Skype, so a little different. But yep. still exciting. And there's not a long drive home afterwards, so that's that's even better.
3: It definitely is. Even though it wasn't that long of a drive, it was still long enough, especially late in the evening after a work day.
0: Sure. Well, the last person we had uh, on this podcast lived in Minnesota, so that's a much longer drive.
3: Indeed.
2: (laughs) She she was regularly coming for, you know, a day trip, so.
0: Yeah, and the only thing is that no one's ever really heard her except for that one episode because every time she'd arrive, we'd say, you know what, we're good on this episode, so thanks, and then she'd drive back.
2: Definitely yeah. landed. That was a good one. Thank you. It's great. Mm. You so, know, uh, the film we have...
0: hold this podcast together. I'm just saying.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it is in usually you, so that's that's good. You should take your own horn. <laughs> the film we are discussing is the 1999 uh, drama thriller crime film, which is the talented Mr. Ripley. This film, directed by Anthony Minhala, uh, and stars Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Jude Law, and also features Kate Blanchett and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and some performances by character actors like Philip Baker Hall, James Rayborn, and Jack Davenport. So, The Talented Mr. Ripley takes place in the, in the late 1950s, starting in New York. Tom Ripley, a young underachiever, is sent to Italy to retrieve Dickie Greenleaf, a rich and spoiled millionaire playboy. But when his errand fails, Ripley takes extreme measures. That's a terrible headline. I don't
1: know how factual it is to call him an underachiever, but we can get into that.
0: Or to even say that it fails.
3: <laughs> yeah. Th- th- definitely good conversation points to be had. Yeah, it depends yeah.
0: on whose goalposts you are paying attention to. Mm. <laughs> mm.
2: So. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, since we didn't decide in order beforehand, because we're not organized, uh, who wants to go first?
1: Me okay. Nick should go
0: first. Oh, oh thanks. Right. So go ahead, it. Nick. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh boy. So uh yeah. Uh I'm so glad that Sam picked this movie for us because I am a huge fan of this movie. Uh when I heard that we were doing it I was super pumped because I haven't rewatched it in at least a couple years. Um, but I love this movie. I love everything about it. I think this is one of the greatest uh, ensemble performances, uh, literally across the board. I think this is Gwyneth Paltrow's best work, one of Jude Law's best performances, and definitely one of Damon's best performances in a way that he could only have done this early in his career, um, which is what makes it so electrifying. Um <clears throat> excuse me sorry I had a cough. I love this movie there's so much going on in it um, obviously as just a <laughs> As on a superficial level, as a travelogue, this is just a gorgeous movie. The locales are exquisitely shot, and the actual you know settings that they find and location scouting and all that—it's uh, just breathtaking. And even the way the characters inhabit the space, it kind of recalls to mind some of the Euro thrillers that were happening in this in the 60s and the 70s that were being imported to America. Um And this movie absolutely nails that kind of mise-en-scene. So I absolutely love it as a throwback. Um, within the throwback that it already is taking place in the 50s, um, I've never read the novel that it's based off of. And apparently the, the book readers uh, take umbrage with this adaptation for one distinct reason. Which is that this version of Patricia Highsmith's novel um, shows sympathy to the character of Ripley, whereas the book just doesn't, and the other versions of this that have been adapted to a movie uh, don't as well. But honestly, that's what I find riveting about this movie, because I don't think the sympathy ever fully crosses the line into actually endorsing any of his actions it just creates or resolving him yeah exactly it just creates this total tragic spiral that is um is honestly enhanced i think by the fact that we can see a human being underneath all of these awful decisions being made um I gotta shout out to my boy Philip Seymour Hoffman, RIP, because he's always been a scene stealer. But I think this movie in and of itself is like the definition of scene stealing because of who the character of Freddie Miles is, you know, as an interloper in Ripley's life, threatening to literally take the spotlight away from him and he does it so well um every time i watch this movie for like a week after i just say the phrase how's the peeping tom uh over and over because of just how weirdly uh (laughs) philip seymour hoffman delivers that line um but, yeah, I think this is just a fantastic movie. I love that it's kind of uh structured in a way where the first half you're watching Ripley Covet the life he wants, which is, you know, the basically the life of uh, Dickie. And then the second half is focused on him trying to maintain his grip on it um, and him kind of utterly failing, even though obviously he's got a lot of <laughs> tricks up his sleeves and he's very good at manipulating people. He's putting more work into it than... You know, it's kind of a cost, uh, whatever, ratio is all all off because he's not able to enjoy it, really. Um, To the point where even the one scene that I think is stellar, um, when Marge is about to come up to the apartment, possibly seeing Ripley in front of the Italian policeman, believing him to be Dickie for the first time, and... For a split second, uh, Ripley drops the charade almost entirely, saying, you know what, fine. And he looks partly relieved for a second, but he's given too much time to actually think about that and process what that would mean. Which I don't even think is necessarily a fear of the actual act of getting caught, so much as just losing what he has gained in the process and the desire to never go back to the place he was at. Um, and I just, it's just a stupendous feat of acting within a few seconds from Damon. Um, and also his personal journey in the closet. I think some people are probably going to call it problematic because this is dangerously close to the trope of closeted queers as psycho, you know, trope or whatever, but I think there's a saving grace here, which is mostly Matt Damon's performance, which doesn't necessarily conflate the two aspects of his personality. Um, If anything, there's a lot to say here about how he has to perform in everyday society anyway as a closeted gay man that the idea of him trying to kind of chameleon his way in this, this high society life that he was not born into and is really quite shunned from um, it, it, it's almost like it's second nature to him anyway because that's just how he's been living his life um, and so the idea that he would have to fight for that is almost understandable from a, from a distance at least so I don't quite conflate the two as being related even if the death uh of dickie you know takes place at the height of his closest to coming out and whatnot but um yeah i have a lot of thoughts on this movie but overall i think it's just amazing to be honest and uh i think you know it's funny we did a recording on the movie the shawshank redemption uh, a couple weeks ago and people cite that for understandable reasons as like the movie that they can't turn off uh if they catch it on tv or whatever um i honestly was planning to watch this for like a half hour I and mean, then i had to like go do something uh and then i was gonna finish it the uh later of that night and sure enough i pressed play and two hours and 20 minutes later it was over because this is a movie that i personally cannot turn off So, yeah, those are my opening thoughts. So, who would like to go next? I will. All right. So,
2: I, uh, full disclosure, had not seen this all the way through before, only seen bits and pieces. So, this was my first full viewing, and I was for sure a fan. Uh, I think that this is absolutely good work from all the performers in this film, uh, specifically Matt Damon, who I think is great here. Um, Definitely some similarities between uh, characters he would play in later films in terms of uh, his performance. Uh, I absolutely feel like there's some similarities between him and Mark Whitaker uh, in terms of that character. So that was uh, very interesting to see is obviously he's uh, physically a little bit different in uh, The Informant. Uh, aside from that, the story here is just very intriguing, um, even though it is very simple. Uh, and I think that that is why this location and this time period are so perfect for this, uh, as you know, in this modern era, no one, I don't think could get away with this in the way that Tom Ripley was able to pull this off. Um, and, and in all honesty, um, you know, he, he's giving a vibe of, of someone like Bernie Madoff, who's who's thinks he's going to get caught all, always. And he's just going to keep going uh, as long as he possibly can. There's even a moment where he almost gives up uh, halfway through and then tries to keep it going. Uh, and it's very interesting to watch him operate as he's uh, spun all these lies. Light- Together and they've almost uh, spun out of control uh, in multiple times. Um, but everything that happens between the beginning, middle, and end of this film uh, that leads to ultimately him basically sailing off into the sunset, uh, although he's extremely depressed uh, because he's got a lot of things going on, um, uh, are very um, interesting and really pull you in, as Nick was alluding to, uh I I was so stressed out during the scene when Tom uh Ripley and Philip Seymour Hoffman are in uh the apartment uh and they're having a <laughs> conversation and it just feels so um uncomfortable for did you like the, the view?
1: Yeah. Yeah, where he kept on stroking the key in order to just like needle him
2: yeah and also the fact that you know Dickie didn't play the piano, so why is there a piano here? um it, you know there's a lot of moments where, and I think that's another thing and I was gonna get to this later, but i guess I'll mention it now. um this film also does a really great job of never giving in to the audience, and I'm sure that that's the source material is the same way, but there's there's not like there's always moments throughout this where it seems like. Oh, someone else is going to show up and they are going to blow his cover, or someone else is going to show up and it's going to be uh, a problem for him, and he's going to have to figure. So, like, things just kind of happen the way that they, you know, can happen. So he can just keep weaving throughout this web of lies he spun, and it, it doesn't never feels, you know, built up for uh, the audience. It it just feels. Authentic, and it actually kind of feels like a foreign film in that way because it doesn't feel like it has the same beats as you would normally see in an American thriller. So, I I was a fan. I think that this is a really good film, and I have a lot of other thoughts, especially about um, Tom Ripley's backstory, which we get a little bit in the beginning, um, but I feel like that you could easily call into question anything we even see in the early parts of this film and uh, what we are led to believe as his actual life and is him is, is that even tom ripley is is that just someone else's personality he previously took and has this been going on for even longer and we don't know and I, I mean it's not that kind of film necessarily but at the same time um i feel like all the cards are on the table here um and it's um it's great it's great to watch and uh, it was a lot of fun and um just like nick i uh couldn't look away and think this is a really solid
1: film. So Sam, do you saw I would like to go next. Okay. Cool. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of have a, a, a similar relationship to, to Alex and that I have not seen this film in many years, but in actuality, I've actually never quite seen this film. It's something that's always sort of, hovered in the background like maybe like a a VHS cover might like be like next to me and I've seen like the the name the talented Mr. Ripley maybe I've like caught one isolated scene from the film but not really enough to like sort of like piece together the full context this is actually like the first time that I've, I've actually ever sat down to watch this film and I'm so thankful that we're doing an episode on on this film for this week because I absolutely loved it um I think that it's just intricately plotted. It is exceptionally well acted. Um, I love the score. I love uh, the color grading of so many different scenes. The cinematography is absolutely exquisite. Um, but let's, what about let's start the, with the thing that I did. Yeah, was gonna say, What about I the color
0: like. grading of the main titles?
1: Uh, yeah, I hate those fucking main titles. Uh, they're absolutely atrocious. I was... I was legitimately wondering if there was something wrong with my television and or if there was something wrong with the the version that was uploaded on Netflix. Uh, but no, that's just the the film. Like that was, and I, and I checked like this film's from like 1999. So maybe they had just discovered windows movie maker and like thought it was like the fucking Holy grail and decided, Oh, T- I can Toussaint put had filters his, on everything.
2: Tucson had his Sopranos finale moment where it's actually physically hitting the television, trying to get it to stop
1: i fuck off uh man i wish it would just stop because otherwise it was a really great movie um yeah i don't like that title sequence uh i think it's corny and cheesy and not in a sort of uh endearing way and something that is sort of like totally antithetical to the quality of it, the the preceding film itself yes, It yes
3: very 90s oh, sorry. yeah so
1: that's okay very-
3: i can be nick for the day too
1: no you don't need to be nick now uh yeah, it is, it is a it is it is a, uh, a, a atrociously uh, 90s opening title sequence. Uh, but overall, the rest of the film I really enjoyed. Matt Damon, uh, how can you even sort of like encapsulate this this performance into words? Like, how do you just like bottle it and just like share it with other people? I don't know. It's like, but I would what really strikes me about this film, I guess I'll, I'll go off of the last point that Alex uh, sort of mentioned is that by the end, you're not really sure whether or not the, I think the quality of the fact that we're not even sure if Tom Ripley is his real identity or somebody who's, he's just taken on before that is just, it, it really just goes back to that, that final scene where he asks somebody else who knows him or, or thinks they know him to tell him the nice things that they know about him. Because I, he himself is so lost in this in, in this in this this facade, this performance that he's created out of out of everyone uh, around him and himself that he doesn't even have a an identity anymore and like to see like I had a rough idea where the course of the story was going to go um, from the the outset like basically the scene of him like packing up his clothes and listening to like old jazz records and basically being like a quick study to being able to like, sort of like ingratiate himself with Dickie before he even leaves to Italy and basically seeing him ascend those stairs and then climb into the actual like limousine that's supposed to take him to like the airport and seeing that it's across from like a butcher shop or like some type of, uh, uh, you know, like like restaurant or some shit like that, like to see just where, this person comes from you now understand really when he actually does have a taste of another life of a better life of just a, an, an objectively better life by multiple different magnitudes like what how far will he actually go to not walk back down those stairs again and that that, that it, it's it's just it, it, it's it's just a really Powerful performance. I love watching uh like Matt Damon play against uh Jude Law. Another thing that I thought of when I was watching this film is this is the second film that I've watched with Jude Law where somebody is trying to impersonate him or take his identity, and the other one is my fa- favorite film, Gattaca. So I thought that was really funny. Um, yeah, Patrick, Pat, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this is just an absolute bastard and i love him for it because nobody could play a bastard quite like him um he's just he's just magnetic and how much of a dick he is like you just you just you just hate him just because of the way he contorts his face when he's in the booth and he's like listening to music and he's just like trying to size everybody up around him because that's the sort of uh, a, a background that he comes from um yeah, there's there's a lot of other thoughts that I have about this film um, that I'm just like sort of like spilling at its feet because I love it so much, but in order to just like wrap up my initial like thoughts, I love this film. I want to keep talking about this film.
0: I just want to say one random thought about Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie which is that for him to play such a like you said magnetic dickhead uh it's very ironic because throughout the entire movie he's also probably the smartest person in the film because he's the only person who sees pretty much through ripley from the very beginning so you also don't hate him uh 100 percent from the moment he walks on screen
1: yeah he's able to 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 size people up and know whether they are of the same breed and stock as he is. I mean that's 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 what douchebags like him were raised to do. Like it's what it is. Um yeah. Yeah, that's
3: a little, little powerful to follow, but um <laughs> um similarly so I like to kind of go off of what you had mentioned, Toussaint, um the score um was lovely about this Um, they're the the one that I keep thinking about um, is when they're in the jazz club um, and just how fluid it is in transition from that oh I can't remember where they were previously um, when Dickie and um, what's uh, Matt Damon's character Tom um, when they go into the jazz club but you hear the music coming in the scene beforehand um just everything about the the score of it is lovely um and again i think that there's something cinematically beautiful about this piece too um also apologies for a grumbling dog if you can hear her in the background (laughs) she's been quiet this entire time except for now um (laughs) but um the um One of the beautiful shots is when um, Tom is going uh, after he has dropped off Marge um, to the church and and she's starting to go up towards the stairs. And I just thought there's a lot of beautiful angles um, to this, Um, even when they're out on the boat. um, It's quite lovely as well, um, where that boat is just center of the frame. Um, and you just see nothing but the beautiful water, um, and that, that entire scene, I thought, was very well done. Um, I, I myself have never read this book either, um, but I'm deeply curious to, to kind of get a, a feel for if this is what the movie is like, um, I'm very curious as to what the novel must be like, um though I think one of the things that I initially had trouble with, um, so I, maybe it's on my own fault, um, I went into this film trying my best not to know anything about it. Um, I didn't really look up anything about um, who is who in the movie. I didn't look up, um, you know, setting, time, or anything like that. Um, But I... Very much love that there's a lot of good, I guess, costuming and set design that it it you instantly realize okay this is uh, like a 1940s 50s um, film and there's there's so much beauty to that that scene work um, throughout the entire film at least from what um, least in my watching that's what i i think of um and even the act of there's a couple of times when they go to the theater um and to be able to shoot live theater in a cinematic way um takes um a good cinematographer (laughs) um if you ask me because oftentimes it looks yeah sorry sam you're good
2: no, oh, I was just going to say about the uh, second theater scene um, yes. when uh, the uh, person gets killed and the way they did the blood, the blood. Uh, yes. on the stage—that um, it's not necessarily like a film thing, but man, that looked good.
3: <clears throat> oh, de- it's definitely not just a film thing. I know there was. Um... The So some of my favorite things about, like, live theater um, are the ways in which they can portray someone bleeding. Um, Probably one of my favorite renditions is a production of Sweeney Todd, um, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Um, There was a production, and I can't remember what theater it was, um, but... um, For folks who don't know, Sweeney Todd slits throats, um, and then they use the bodies to um, supply the meat pies um, at Mrs. Lovett's, which is just below the barber shop that he reestablishes. And in the slitting of the throats, um, that particular production of it, they use these beautiful red scarves that as the barber, or as the actor who played the barber cut the throat, it was, the scarf coming out of the individual's shirt, um, and that scarf would be tossed out, like from their um, from the collar of their shirt, out into the the audience, essentially, or onto the stage. Um, and to this day, like seeing something like that is just beautiful. Um, and and being able to see live theater done well, or like I guess captured well in through the cinematography is something that I um, really appreciated. It didn't look like a home movie, um, which is something that I get very agitated about in certain films when they're trying to film something on stage and you're like, man, I know I can do better with my own like phone camera at this point for angles and like get a better angle of the, the stage production. Um, but overall, um, I really enjoyed this film. I am very intrigued by the character dynamic that Matt Damon plays in this throughout. Because <laughs> um, in I, in my experiences of watching his films, I've never seen such a um, a dynamic. Um, play by him before I guess where you get to see kind of all sorts of different emotions and um see him across the the emotional spectrum if you will I I think that might be the best way to phrase it um so that's something that I very much enjoyed about this film um and I also um I also liked Jude Law's character um in particular and and just Jude Law's performance in general with this. Um, I have never been a huge Gwyneth Paltrow fan, um, and I will continue to be so. Um, I appreciated her performance in this, um, but I, um, the scene I keep thinking of is when she accuses um, Tom Ripley of... Um, of actually killing Dickie and things like that. And she starts sobbing. Um, I, I wonder if there could have been, if it could have been a little bit stronger, I guess. Um, I don't think that's the right word. Um, but I'd be curious to see other actresses perform that same role. Um, just because there's, um, it, it seems like a very quiet role, but then when you're in the middle of grieving and or um, kind of coming out of it, um I'd be curious to see how other actresses would um, would take that in in what direction. Um, but yeah, i um I'm glad that we we picked this one um, over uh, some other ones for the time being.
0: Who wants to lead? Party! Um, I thought that everything
3: cut out for a minute, so (laughs) I got a little nervous there.
0: No, these uh, Skype conversations can get a little silent every once in a while, because we can't use eye contact, unfortunately. Um, But I'll kick it off. Um, One thing I definitely want to touch on is how this movie is also about a man's uh, battle with self-loathing. Um, you know the opening lines of this movie is Ripley narrating saying if I could go back and rub everything out and then including myself so right off the bat we're already kind of having a perspective from a man who's dealing with, at least a form of suicidal ideation, um, who, you know, has the fantasy of if he wasn't around, there would be no problem because his existence, in and of itself, is the problem. And the more he reckons with that, the more he's challenged uh, every step of the way, even if he is, you know, uh, a murderer and a, a, a villain, so to speak, he's also essentially just trying to fight. For an identity and an existence, um, and failing at every turn, mostly because he's just not truthful, uh, and but also knowing he'd be persecuted for the truth. Um, and then for the final lines of this movie, uh, it's just one of the most gorgeously poetic, <laughs> um, kind of ruminations on, I think, somebody's worst fear when it comes to that, uh, kind of battle with depression and self-loathing when he asked Peter to say nice things about Mr. Ripley um you know seeking validation it in somebody's eyes, they're probably thinking that that's his lowest point. You know, like it's just base vanity. But in reality, he's just asking for what he actually wants, instead of beating around the bush and or uh, lying to get it. The problem is, by that point, none of it means anything because it's not him. Um, and. The sinister turn that that scene takes, which I love the fact that we don't actually get to see the murder, we just hear it, because then when we hear the audio um, of Peter's last words, as he's saying the nice things, the last thing he says and is starting to repeat is, is Tom is crushing me, and taken... As almost like a non sequitur. Or at least separate from the, the way that scene started. Like that's what a person feels like they are to other people. When they hate themselves. They feel like for whatever reason their existence is a burden on somebody else's. And at the end of the day that they are crushing them. But in Tom Ripley's case it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But um, it's just a gorgeous through line um for a very dark subject matter. But I absolutely love the way that this movie opens and closes. Uh particularly with regards to Damon's performance uh in both of those scenes
1: now uh Nick you mentioned uh before that there is some controversy uh with regards to this particular adaptation with this um, Sort of the but uh, coded like homoeroticism between him and and Dicky.
0: No, not with that. The controversy is with sympathizing with Ripley. Um, I believe the book is queer coded and not subtext yeah. or anything like that. Um, but okay. it never once tries to humanize Ripley. Um, in this way, I would say, that the movie does. I haven't read it, so I don't know the full extent of what that entails. I've only read the people's reaction. But it seems to stem from the idea that Ripley himself should not be the hero of the story, which obviously in the movie he's not... He's not the hero of the story. Right, and he's not the hero, but... Following him, we do get dangerously close to, I guess, beyond understanding, but not quite um, endorsing. I don't know, but uh, I I haven't read the book, so I can't make the leap, but that's what some people have been citing. There is another adaptation called Purple Moon, uh, which is supposed to be a much more straightforward adaptation.
1: I guess if I were to um, sort of like jump off of that point, um, like comparing it to a book and a film that I, I have read and watched and that I do enjoy and that I think is sort of comparable in sort of its portrayal of a reprehensible antagonist that whether you you like him or not, you come to sort of sympathize with that person purely by dint of the fact that you're sort of occupying their their headspace in that same way. It's like, it reminds me of Patrick Susskind's, uh perfume, The Story of a Murderer, where you have uh, John Baptiste Grenouille and you're basically following him from his, his life, uh, like from his birth, from his life, all the way to its inevitable conclusion. And I, I, I yeah, I, I, I don't mind sympathizing with a, with a reprehensible protagonist so long as we don't mistake that protagonist for being a hero. And that, honestly, there are no real heroes in this story, um, or ones that actually have any like like occupying like proper screen time. Maybe the closest thing to a hero um, might be March for the fact that she's trying so hard to 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 go after the truth and really trying to fight for that, but nobody listens to her, so it's a tragedy in that, that sort of regard. And it's like, it's a psychological thriller tragedy where like,
2: yeah, it's, it's It is funny that, um, <clears throat> they would, uh, definitely trust the very suspicious, uh, guy who came from nothing more than a woman,
1: not the um, woman because her voice
2: is a little too shrill. Well, the, the other interesting the part struggle. of, yeah, uh, of, of that, sorry. Um, very uh, actually wonderful portrayal of the uh, detective by Philip Baker Hall is that he finds one clue of something and he basically is like, well, we've solved this. Um, it's pretty clear to me that um, embarrassment is more detrimental than, um, than the truth uh, for James Rayborn and finding out about his his uh, son. He just wants to bury that and live in this fantasy world. And, um, his son, and basically. right. So, giving them, obviously, it's very fortuitous uh, in that moment for Tom Ripley uh, as he gets a large amount of money out of that um, and all of his problems go away simultaneously. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that's a really underplayed and wonderful part of this film because. Um, it's played up as an actual investigation, and I guess maybe it kind of was, but um, boy, why that smells to me is that both James Rayborn and Philip Baker Hall know the truth, um, and they're just wanting to have this end. Um, and it's kind of a fucked up moment as as they're pulling Gwyneth Pelter onto the boat and like almost physically trying to silence her. Um, It's a very interesting part of film.
0: I would say that you're right. And also I would half agree, which is I don't know that they necessarily suspect Ripley so much as from the moment this started, uh, James Reborn hired, um, you know, Phillips uh, Baker Hall to basically go investigate James Reborn's narrative, in and of itself, which is that my son probably killed a person. Go find out what you can, which really means go make sure that that looks like it's pretty much possible. And we can wrap this up. Uh, I mean,
2: my my reading is he found a doctor to tell him what he wanted, the diagnosis he wanted. Yeah. And I think you're saying the same thing, but, yeah. but it feels very uh, not realistic.
0: Oh, absolutely. No, for sure. Um, Yeah, you know, last week when you mentioned Phil Baker Hall was in this, and I kind of forgot, it's because he literally doesn't appear until there's like 20 minutes left in the movie, and I think for one scene only. Uh, but you're right, though, that he (laughs) wonderfully underplays his role in the entire thing, which is taking Ripley out onto the balcony and basically saying, um, and then looking around and be like, okay, so here's here's the deal. He's done this before, and that's when it all kind of gets split wide open. And what I love about that is that I feel like, in the wrong hand that that would seem like a deus ex machina where it would just kind of seem out of nowhere but literally everything we've learned about Dickie Greenleaf till that moment makes that revelation make perfect sense to the point where we almost feel silly for not even thinking that that was a possibility uh, beforehand so I, I absolutely love the way that that crops up
1: one of my uh my favorite scenes in in this film is the one scene where uh, Ripley actually tells Dickie the truth, and it's relatively mm-hmm. early on when with, for their uh, through their friendship when they're just uh, I think they're in like the garden veranda and oh, Marge is like going to get something to eat. Yeah, no, when when he says like everybody should have one talent, what's yours? and Tom is, like, telling lies, forging signatures, and impersonating almost anybody. Like, and he passes it off as, like, a glib joke, but I'm just like, he's literally telling you what he's good at. And I just I just find that to be so fascinating. Like, he would just be honest in that one, like, in that one instance, but he plays it off as, like, oh, he's talking about someone else. Like, he's throwing his voice almost.
3: Well, and something that I'm not to interrupt you, but the oh, something yeah. that intrigues me about that scene in particular, too, is that especially when you look at a timeline of the, the length of their relationship and how long they've known each other and on what intimacy level, um, it's very... I don't know, I personally, like, if if I know that's the person's humor, I would be like, oh, yeah, I know you're joking. But if I don't know that person well enough and I have not gotten a feel for what their humor is, I would have been a little skeptical and I would have been a little nervous to know that, like, this individual has, like, I mean, thievery skills for the most part.
1: Even, even, Even joking. Like, I think he, like, Dickie reads as a sort of personality that, like, he thrives on being entertained. He likes being entertained. If you find somebody interesting enough, to, like even if they're just like telling a joke, he never really takes anybody like seriously, like until like they prove that they have like some sort of merit or value to uh, to being around him. Another one of my favorite lines, uh, I think it's the first line. One of the first lines that uh, that Dicky says to uh, Tom when they meet on the beach is, "You're so white." Have you ever seen a guy so white? And I just burst out laughing. I was just like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Uh, It was it was a great uh, it it was a great moment. I enjoyed it. Uh, Well,
2: we're uh, saying favorite lines. uh, I absolutely love the moment where he says he wants to fuck the refrigerator. I thought that was great. Oh,
1: I could I could fuck this icebox. I'm just like, God, (laughs) I mean, we've all been there. Um, I love this icebox so much I can fuck it. It's like, Jesus. <laughs>
2: That's a soundbite we're going to have forever. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: no.
0: Yes. Um, Don't do that. Speaking of the garden scene, though, what's interesting is not only does Eddie reveal, you know, his talent right off the bat, it only takes him a few more beats before he then starts to do the uh, James Reborn impression. Which is actually probably the creepiest moment in the movie for me, because not only does he does a very good James Reborn, but then without signaling whatsoever, he immediately blows his cover as to why he's there by giving the reason you know that the father sent him, but through the impression of his father's voice, so it's almost like he's not admitting it. Uh, in and of itself it's it's like it's this one moment of almost disassociation um, and it's it's wonderfully played. but it's uh, a lot gets said in that in that garden scene to the point where I feel like that's the most honest he was. but Dicky only took everything he said as as a parlor trick or just another story to tell at a party. All right. Uh, I There are a few random little details that I always laugh at, um, including James Reborn when he first gets to Italy, when they have their first meeting and the guy is playing the saxophone, which is just pissing uh, Herbert Greenleaf uh, off. It's just a wonderful payoff to his hatred of jazz. What a. Uh, I think he says something like, "What a life of wasted opportunities," or something. Oh boy, what an asshole!
1: I would pay that man a hundred dollars just to shut the hell up.
2: <laughs> couldn't even get the currency right. Yeah, couldn't
1: even get <laughs> the it's currency fine. right. Uh, what do you think <laughs> of the uh, the actual uh, uh, murder scene between uh, Dickie and and Tom?
3: I love it.
1: <laughs> there we go yeah that's great it's where it's where this whole like sort of obsession like i i i i i I kind of like the 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 homoerotic undertones or or whatever you want to call it between um tom and and Dicky just because it does sort of like fall in that sort of mold of emulation that I think this is this is tom's love language for lack of a better term like he only has a like for a man who has such a, a a superficial sort of conception of self his idea of love of what he believes love to be ultimately is just like infatuation proximity and eventual emulation if not sublimation of the the object of his of his desire
2: do you think he was planning to murder him?
1: I don't think he was planning to murder him, but I think that he always, he he really took it to heart that he wanted to be near this person and around this person for as long as possible and failing that becoming that per- person.
0: Well, for me, too, it's not just failing that, which he does, and that definitely influences his uh, split decision, but... For me, what it, uh, transpires on that boat is actually Dickie Greenleaf's, like, lowest moment, besides his treatment of women. Putting that aside for a second, um, which is a whole other ballpark. But oh yeah, he's almost unspeakably cruel to Ripley. Like, no matter how creepy Ripley is, up until that point, he's literally done nothing that Dickie hasn't either occur- encouraged or made happen in some way because he was getting off on it so for him I mean it's one thing obviously if he obviously you know not interested or if he decides that he's over it but he essentially snaps because he's just an asshole and he'd rather make someone else feel like shit than admit any participation in this fantasy whatsoever, which is the ultimate, you know, insult to what Ripley was kind of going for, which is that he was essentially, I think at least, going to be okay with doing this forever, letting him marry marry Marge and let Dickie live happily ever after in the way that he wanted to so long as he could, you know, be there and dicky i'm not saying he should agree to that but he pretended like that was the craziest thing ever despite the fact that he lives his own uh you know life of a laissez-faire attitude that is mooching off of his own father's trust fund and whatever else like he's not that much different and if anything he could stand to gain from having a presence like Ripley who is kinda of managing his affairs for him. He just doesn't want to admit that he would benefit from anybody else's, you know, assistance or in this case even affection.
1: It's it's just like what Marge told Tom on the on the boat where it's just like, you know, like Dickie is like the sun. When he shines on you, like it feels great. Like it feels like you know you're the only person in the world and then when he turns cold it can get very very cold and like his his sort of uh on and off sort of like vacillating infatuation with others is is a is a, just a persistent character trait and like if it i i it's hard to find a lot of uh redeemable characters in this in this sort of immediate circle of people. I think Marge is probably the most redeemable, absolutely, But by and large. Dickie is a dick, true to his name. Um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is an absolute dick. And it, it's, it's, it's just, you can totally see the shape of what Dickie's relationship with Marge would be if they had gotten married. That this is not just like a an aberration. This is a a a, a path of behavior that has just been cultivated and groomed among uh, a very uh, different echelon of of folks who happen to come from privilege.
3: And I think Toussaint, you make a good point too. Of there's. It, especially within this film, you learn a lot about class structure and the the caste system in, in many ways that was existent and, is, as some would argue, even persistent in today's society, too, of those that are from that upper echelon or those that come from wealth um really truly do have that laissez-faire um personality about them and not that what tom does is right by any means i don't think that it's possible to put it on a moral and ethical scale at the moment um (laughs) uh but i think something to consider is whether or not and i i I can't recall if it, who, which one of you had said it, but, um, whether or not like Tom Ripley is just another impersonation of someone else that Matt Damon's character had taken on from someone else. Um, and it makes me curious of, of, you know, who is the true character in that part, in that part, um, and whether or not It's a statement that is supposed to be a little bit broader about, you know, wanting what we can't have. The grass is always greener on the other side, sort of, um, I guess, conversation. Um, In this case, I don't think it's worth it, Um, but that's also a a personal opinion on it. Um, But I'd be very interested to know of, especially in the book version, of what sort of... um, what's prevalent throughout. Um, I know Nick had mentioned that it's not, uh, it's noted for not humanizing Ripley enough, um, but I'd also be curious then of, you know, what the novel focuses on versus what this, um, this film wanted to focus on. Um, and I, cause I was looking up the, the novel and it looks like it's a piece from its time. Um, it, It was written a little bit closer to the 50s, uh, if not in the 50s. Um, So I'd be curious to see what sort of take either this film brings to it or what the novel brings to it um, in comparison and contrast. Um, Because there's something very um, intriguing about his means to... To acquire wealth and and once he has it, um kind of how he responds with it. Um, so I still find it, yeah,
0: oh no, sorry. Keep going. no, go ahead. I was gonna just basically respond to what you're saying and saying, um, I read a little bit about the book, and the beginning of the book basically outright states that he's a con man and that um, his name is Tom Ripley to the point where even um, Dickie's father, Herbert Greenleaf, seeks him out and approaches him with this job. Um, and it's from there that he starts to lie and he starts to embellish and say, oh, I actually knew your son and so on and so forth. But it It's funny because that's a stark difference, I think, from the opening of the movie, which while we can see maybe the, like, um, I don't know, machinations of a con man, really the opening only truly portrays, um, I would say, a, a working class person just trying to make ends meet. I mean... There are yeah. obviously literal moments of him stretching the truth to hold the job or make some money, but not in the way where he's actually taken advantage. I mean, even the reason why he's impersonating the piano player is almost uh, a pure moment when he returns the jacket and the guy's got his arm in a cast. So it it's not like he stole that from somebody. Um, and then of course see he's,
2: he's just seen, he he seems like a hard worker. That was exactly. my interpretation from the. first Yeah, five minutes, that's exactly
0: that... what I I
3: had thought of at first. Was you know this is a guy that's just trying to make ends meet that he's, you know, <laughs> just working as many odd jobs as he can to it looks, bring in it looks like a, money.
1: He looks like a guy who's just trying to pay off his student loans or just like yes. loans or in general. Like like, like I I feel like yeah. this is uh, this is probably way too surface level of a comparison. Um, given that they share like similar themes and that these themes together of, of just being working class and like the divide between different sort of like castes of wealth within America and how much a person is willing to do in order to have the, the, the precarious chance to escape one, one uh, uh, standard of living into another, into an elevated echelon of living is uh like i I thought of 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 parasite a little bit when i was when i was watching this i mean they're not they're not the same sort of film they're 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 very very different in their structure very different in their subjects um different in their in in their style but i think that just you know working class people who are so desperate to sort of escape poverty that are willing to then sort of like Interject themselves into the lives of, of wealthier people and eventually try to uh, supplant them. Uh,
0: well, and what they do share in common, Toussaint, is the fact that they both pretty much suggest that if you are a part of the lower class, working class, and whatnot, and you find your way, you know, in upper class, whatever, your stay is only temporary at best there's just, it's like there's no way for you to actually hold on to it because the system that's put in place is set uh, for life basically, at least I think that's what they're kind of suggesting. In fact in Talented Mr. Ripley one kind of key difference between something like that and Parasite in a way that's fun to compare them, is that I feel like Dickie and Marge and especially Freddy are pretty much conscious of the fact that tom is probably embellishing maybe not outright lying but trying to fit in and whatnot so they're almost always conscious of the fact i mean at toward the end of his tenure they literally start to make fun of him as to like how he could have possibly afford any of, of the things that he's doing despite the fact that he's Started out with them. So it's like it wasn't a problem, you know, when he was, quote unquote, with them, but it became a problem once he was, you know, quote unquote, against them. Uh, and it, it takes something that I think is very subconscious and parasite uh, and makes it extremely conscious in a story like this.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: In terms of the characters, um, I actually had a, a oh, different comparison, and I think it's just because of the uh, attempt to play the the different person. Obviously, there's a a different uh, goal uh, here, but definitely got uh, a vibe of uh, the Great Gatsby in a way with uh, Tom Ripley's character of this idea of learning how to play the gentleman uh, and use that as his card to convince people that he in fact is old money and not just some guy who happens to have lots of cash with him at all times. Um, It's definitely a very interesting character uh, and not necessarily comparison, but just Tom Ripley in general is always at some point having to con whoever he's with, um, and is setting up these wild scenarios as as it is starting to totally spiral out of control. Um, and mostly after the murder, but at other points too, uh, it's very interesting that he just continues to almost, um, almost want this to happen. Like he he at some point he's wanting to live this life because he could definitely have escaped at multiple you know parts of this. He could have written a letter uh, to um, Dickie's father uh, and totally left, but he wants to live this persona and and live this life, which is very, um, very risky. Um, But obviously, it's something that is is doing it for him because he's wanting to continue this. Um, And that's a really odd aspect of this film, because he's he's wanting to be he's wanting to be of this culture. He's wanting to be um, living in this light, but he also weirdly wants to continue on in this setting with these same people for whatever reason, even though he could definitely escape. That's such a weird scene to the scene where he murders Philip Seymour Hoffman, because that is like the, the top of the mountain for him. Like he's, Uh, oddly sitting and seeming like he's having the greatest Christmas ever being alone. Uh, And he's got his piano and he's in his quaint, large uh, home that he lives in. And then all of a sudden this guy fucking shows up at his door and ruins everything. Um, And it is such a a unusual moment, but also uh, a bizarrely peaceful moment for somebody who's got so much chaos going on in their life
0: absolutely um one thing i do want to mention about that death scene which is so great is when he makes the decision to murder uh freddie he uses that uh bust uh that whatever guy's head
2: Oh, the gift he got for himself that he also wrapped
0: yes which is so lovely um but what i love is that when he uses it against freddie and then it rolls on the floor when the camera pans to it it now has blood on the one side of his face and visually it echoes the exact same state that Dickie was in when he murdered Dickie or at least when he first uh, hit him across the face and he was bleeding down the side of his head and I love the kind of haunting uh, poeticness of that image coming as he's murdering Freddy because this is all kind of stemming from that one decision that he made.
3: It's interesting that you bring up that one, um, that particular moment, Nick, because when uh, um, I was watching this, uh, m- my boyfriend was watching it as well, and he, full disclosure, he had started to fall asleep watching it last night, uh, but then, like, woke up and finished watching some some of it. Um, and when the head rolled, when that, that bust rolled, Um, rolled away and the blood was just so perfectly um, kind of displayed on it. The same with the same wounds as what Dickie had. Um, Even though my boyfriend had not seen that murder scene with Dickie, he was like, Oh, that looks super poetic. I was like, yeah, if you'd been awake, you would have known. But (laughs) um, (laughs) aside from that, it was very, um, (laughs) It was very telling, too. And I think um, I'm partly curious, too, to know, like what uh, I did find out about this book that there are three or four other books within this series. Um, So I'm curious if there's anything that kind of alludes to it in further books of like the death of Dickie or even just like of Peter and, and other folks and things like that.
0: Yeah, I've always heard about the other books, but obviously I don't know of any other adaptation film-wise, so I don't know of anything that happens. But, Sam, you just brought up the last thing that I for sure wanted to talk about um, before we get to final ratings, but I want to ask it of you guys before I take the mic. Um, what do you guys think about Ripley's relationship with Peter? Was that a genuine relationship or do you think that was just another in a series of uh, you know coveting and manipulation?
1: I think that um, that might have been the closest like before what I what I what I said about sort of um, Tom's love language with regards to Um, Dickie and the life that he led I think that his relationship with Peter by contrast might be uh, a more honest and genuine and uh, healthy and affirming sort of relationship and I think that's what drives home the tragedy of this of, of the ending to the film even more that I think that he actually really did love him or have love for him and he can't he's he's gone so far that he can't go back now like the whole the whole thing with, with uh, uh what was what was her name uh the name of the other uh other woman that he was sort of playing off meredith. of uh, Mark- meredith 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 yeah there it is like as we all yeah. chime
3: in <laughs> yeah Want meredith
1: more? like if it hadn't been for the fact that she was there with family like i'm i'm almost positive he would have killed meredith over over peter but i agree because because meredith was there with with family and she had witnesses um like he had to make the choice because he knows that meredith knows peter and if they were ever to meet and introduce their respective like understandings of tom of Tom as Dickie then everything would have just fallen apart and and to live a life where everything could fall apart simply from a chance encounter between two people that you meet and you care about is just that's hell that's absolute hell
3: I'm also partly curious Toussaint you made me think of um of an interesting take of, I wonder whether or not not only did Meredith have family there, and so she wouldn't be an obvious victim in that sense, but um, I, I partly see it as perhaps um, like metaphorical in some sense that he would rather cling to that fanciful life of Dickie than you know come to terms with tom and who tom is because in many ways peter represented tom and and everything about tom versus meredith is is that sort of like grandeur of um of dickie um and in many ways i'm thinking about it and having the gears turn a little bit more i'm very curious of whether or not that's something that's just symbolic um or if it simply is the case that it was just easier for him to kill Peter because, you know what, there's nobody who really cares about Peter on this boat. We can just kind of get away with it and we're done.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, the, the, there's one more scene that uh, uh, I meant to meant to sort of mention, but it also does relate to Peter. But it's when Marge discovers um Tom discovers Dickie's rings among uh, uh, Tom's toiletries and other stuff like that. And he basically just says, like, yeah, go pour us a drink or something like that. And he's scrambling to look for something in the room. And you're wondering why is he scrambling to find something? He's looking for something to kill her with. That's really what it is. And how he then like sort of stalks her as she backs up to the actual door is just absolutely terrifying because as he sort of like begins to then sort of like weave another sort of story in order to sort of ingratiate himself to Marge, Marge all the while understands and knows that some things are just not ending up and it's just not plausible. And she sees the blood sort of pooling like, in, in, the, in the the sort of like corner of his pocket of his of his of his white like bathrobe because he's clutching it so tightly because he's he's trying to steal himself for what he will likely have to do. And it's just it, 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 it's just like so fraught. And then all of that tension is just diffused when Peter comes in and he's trying to console uh, Marge, and then like Tom just like dismisses it as like you try to talk to her, and I'm just like, oh my god, that was such a great scene. Fuck, uh, I loved it.
0: Yeah, I actually, I agree. I, I think. Oh yep. Yep. no, no, you go first.
2: Okay, um, I'm just gonna go off of what Tucson was saying there. That is a, a great scene, and uh, just another, ex, uh, just another. Um, example uh, in this film of uh, uh, the women trying to be pretty much told that their thoughts and uh, feelings don't really matter even though if it's in a different way here Um, the idea of her walking towards the door first of all that's just a great shot of her just continuously backing up and him walking towards her in a dominant powerful way uh, very way of doing things Oh yeah. Harvey knows how to pick them. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a really, <laughs> it's a really horrifying moment, but, um, e- I feel like equally because she is just being told how she's not making sense. She couldn't possibly know what she's talking about. Um, as the blood starts to, you know, Show through his bathrobe. Also, too, is he like grabbing onto that? Like I, I don't know why he started um, bleeding out of his robe. Uh, maybe he sh- shouldn't hold it like that. But you know, maybe next time
1: he's not thinking. Uh, he's just he's just pulling. It, it's like a magician pulling one of those magic scarves out of his out of his uh, uh, his sleeve. But he's just like pulling a story out of his ass. Like that's really what his, like all of his mental faculties, his executive faculties are just all. It would
2: be great if Tom Ripley was a magician. That would be awesome. Yeah. That would be, that'd be fantastic.
1: He's the talented Mr. Ripley.
0: He's the talented
1: Mr.
2: Ripley, man.
0: Um, What's that? uh,
2: What
1: what did he just
0: say?
2: I I lost you sound there for a minute.
1: No, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: What I was going to say uh, with him bleeding is that I, I also think it's another visual cue that self-loathing uh, lies beneath all of this posturing. You know, whatever he's going to do to another person and whatnot is almost always influenced by kind of how he feels himself and how he's really a danger to himself. He just said every turn projecting it outwards. Um when Peter arrives there, um, I okay. I guess I'll say my opinion on Peter and his relationship, which is I think is the first genuine connection he's made. Even though obviously he's lying about who he is, but he's not lying about a certain thing, and it's his most you know sacred truth, which is his sexuality, and what I. Uh, what I think about the scene where Peter arrives when he's possibly going to kill Marge. And what I think is interesting is that I think actually what's transpiring between him and Peter is almost a closeted understanding, which is, I think Peter arrives and believes that Marge has done something to, um, to Tom either made a move or did something, whatever. And, For reasons that only Peter can understand, you know, uh, Tom did not reciprocate or is being cold or something. And remember, I'm saying this about a character who has literally no context for anything, which is why I kind of got this vibe. And so I got the vibe that when he arrives, he not only understands Tom on a deeper level, but he's also willing to essentially not look too closely or deeper into whatever Marge is going to say about him because it's all lie. because he knows that he's fronting about something else to begin with, uh, it, which is unfortunate because obviously Marge is correct in everything that she says, um, but Peter is probably similar to Tom, which is that he wants a truth that he's not allowed to have uh, at least not on 100% perfect terms in society, so he'll take it as he can get it. Um, but by the time that scene comes, when they're on the boat and they're in the room, like I genuinely think that, it, not that he should, deserves a happy ending, but Tom could have had a life with somebody like Peter, but the ultimate tragedy is that he had to go through and leech off of people like um, you know Dickie and Meet Freddie and whatever before he met a genuinely nice person uh, in that c- class, uh, so to speak, um, which is another reason why I think this movie is actually kind of charitable to everybody. Um, not every individual person, but people from all walks of life. Which is stereotypically almost all the rich people are assholes and you know whatnot. But also, it's not a universal trait, and you know everybody is in some way fronting about who they are and dealing with that kind of shit. But, um, yeah, I, that's at least where I fall when it comes to him and Peter, and for him to make that choice is obviously probably the hardest choice he has to make at the very end, because this is the first time where he's killing someone that actually means something to him in a way that none of the others did, or no matter what he thought.
2: Yes. So, um, before going into my closing thoughts, I'll comment uh, on your uh, question, Nick. Uh, I feel like, yeah, I feel like he does actually care about Peter. I mean, the, the, I think the symbolic moment of him giving him the key to his uh, hotel room or wherever he is, um, It's very important of him, A, having the idea of having someplace to give a key to, um, but also at the same time, um, not being so guarded to the fact that he could walk in on him doing some fucked up stuff. Uh, So, you know, very much trusting uh, in that sense. But obviously, I think the moment when he lets him know that he spotted him kissing Meredith uh, is 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 unfortunately the, the moment when it's all over and he knows that there's no way that this is going to continue on without uh, him knowing about him and her. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate because it, it's a bit heartbreaking for him because he can't go on with this life he imagined for himself. But uh, in, in reality, even though it's kind of a nice potential sailing off into the sunset moment for him, um, it was probably never going to really work out because of uh, everything that preceded it. So um, definitely a very, very tough moment for everybody, obviously, especially for Peter as he gets murdered. Uh, but at the same time, it's, um, it's uh, an interesting – and I agree with you totally, Nick, that the fact that it's an off-screen killing and you just hear the audio uh, of the struggle and the, uh, the dialogue going back and forth um, makes it all the better.
1: So I, I, I gave the... the oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Matt. Uh, no, you, you give your your score first. Sorry.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, so I uh, very much enjoyed this, this film. Again, the first viewing. So I am probably uh, would change this uh, a second time through. But it's three and a half out of five for me for the talented Mr. Ripley. I believe this is a very good film. Uh, very beautiful. We, we didn't talk at all about the... Uh, the amazing jazz club scenes that, um, feel very, uh, authentic. Americano, and at the same time,
1: uh,
2: those are just lovely. Uh, and they were fun to watch and, um, well shot, well blocked, uh, and wonderful cinematography. Um, the entire subplot, um, uh, with the pregnant, uh, female that, uh, drowns, uh, that seems lover. also beautiful. We're, I'm sorry.
3: The um, pregnant lover who drowns herself and yeah. the religious folks find her in the river. Or in the yeah, and every, canal.
2: Yeah, everything about Jude Law's telling of that story sounds suspicious. Um, so uh, who knows if any of those details are even authentic. Um, and I feel like a lot of things in this film you could easily take that way, but, uh, that's a beautiful scene. Um, and we have so many of them here that just weave together in a really well done film. That's both beautiful and also, uh, a very interesting story. And, uh, I very much enjoyed it and we'd probably enjoy it even more the next time through. I just think there's a lot of meat on the bone with this film and, uh, it was really well done. And I'm glad we did an episode on it. Tucson.
1: Yeah. Um, thank you, uh, Alex. I am so sorry to have uh, accidentally uh, interrupted you right before you were about to give your um, your score for this film. I just wanted to say that I absolutely adore this film. I am so glad that I had an opportunity again to be able to, to not only watch it, but also be able to discuss it with you so soon afterwards. Because... Um, I really just appreciated the, the experience of being able to sort of like toss this around in my head and being able to just like, um, have this conversation if you all, because it's just, it, it was, it was a wonderful film. Uh, that said, I was about to say something incredibly stupid and that's why I stopped myself because when, uh, Alex, uh, uh, mentioned the, the moment where Peter was saying to Tom, uh, I saw you kissing Meredith. I almost instantly imagined the song, I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus and imagined how that song would end in a talented Mr. Ripley-esque fashion. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's so fucked up. I did, um, I that's did sad. see it. <sighs> tell, me, tell, me, tell me some things you love about Mommy. <laughs> tell me some things you love about Santa Claus. Mommy's
2: crushing uh, me. You got that score, Toussaint?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do have that score. Yes, uh, my, my score is uh, four out of five. I think that this film is pretty, pretty amazing. And I can only see it going up from here uh, with subsequent viewings. So four out of five. All, All right.
3: right. D- sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I... Uh, like Alex, this was my first time viewing this, um, so um, and I, I came into it with kind of no prior knowledge of it um, and, and of the plot and characters and things like that. Um, but I genuinely enjoy this film. Um, I think there's um, a lot about it that um, makes it rich, um, especially with characters and, and character development. Um, I think there's something very lovely, um, about the cinematography and, um, particularly I believe Toussaint had touched on it, um, or maybe Alex did, um, about the color, um, and about the, um, color gradient, um, and things like that. Um, it was you, Toussaint. Okay. Um. I think there's something very lovely about just um, the richness of the color and of the the um, filming of it. Um, even with some of those, um, I know we definitely focus a lot on the character, but even um, cinematography wise, just some of the shots were v- very lovely um, and were beautiful to take in that um, that scenery in, in Italy. Um and, um, that one, I think my two favorite scenes were, um, Tom killing Dickie on the boat. Um, and when Tom is confronting Marge in, in the, um, like apartment or home, whichever you want to consider it. Um, those were two um very palpable scenes and um I do enjoy the the acting and the performances in here. Um that said, um I know that I'll obviously watch it again, um, but the chances of me sitting and, and being glued to the TV um for this film are maybe not as high um as some other films that I've seen um But overall, I think that this was really well done. Um, I would give it a three and a half out of five as well um, for such a lovely job. And um, especially, um, I don't know if like decade wise or like timing wise, um, I was very impressed that this came out um, in 1999. I guess my small child's brain at the time uh, obviously would not have been able to watch this, uh, but at the same time uh, I'm very impressed that such beautiful cinematography was kind of around and about at that time, like this one.
1: Even if the opening title sequence was trash.
3: Okay, that one... (laughs) I was very worried about like the color, and I think you had mentioned it too, of like wondering like what was wrong with the version on Netflix. Um, you know what that
1: reminded me of? It reminded me of like, y'all never uh, seen like, a movie but, from the nineties. No, 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 no. Sam, <laughs> what this reminded me of uh, um, was when like you would pop in like an old like uh, VHS, and it would have the. Coming soon to VHS and, and yes. DVD. like It looks exactly like that shit.
3: Okay, because I was thinking something very similarly when I was yeah. watching the open se- the, the open sequence, um, and that was something I was acutely aware of because I just didn't know where those colors came from. And, right. It looks like, like a
1: first-generation DVD menu where they just put yes. an overlay over it.
3: Yes, that's a great way to describe it because that's exactly how I started thinking of it. I thought that maybe like I was missing something. Um that, you know, in that time that I had started the film that I I, I don't know there was something weird about it. Um but uh, that that menu aside, um yeah. I I think there was a lot that was very well done uh, in this film and um, by all the folks that were involved with
0: it. Yeah. Alright. Yeah. I'm a big old fan of this movie. Uh, I think I've seen it now five-ish times in the last decade. Um, And I think it's honestly solidified as one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, So I give it 4.5 out of 5. I think the main title sequence is genius. I think it is probably the apex of what cinema was able to achieve, uh, both in the 90s but also at large. And the rest of the movie is almost as good, but uh, not quite on that level. So yeah, 4.5 out of 5.
2: wonderful so um that's our review <laughs> that's it bring that's us all about us. yes I've, I've got this uh that is our review of the talented Tom Ripley Mr. Uh, Ripley the... to you uh, the talented Mr. Ripley sorry about it's that
1: Mr. Van Winkle to you <laughs>
2: If you there have any thoughts on the talented Mr. Ripley, you can always Jeez. feel free to send
0: them on. <laughs> you're like the living <laughs> embodiment free... of those main title sequence.
1: Fuck you! <laughs> oh.
0: Just bright oh, and oh, colorful.
2: Oh. A little cheesy. You can always send your thoughts on to us at oh. FilmTankShow at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at FilmTankShow and find...
1: If we weren't in a pandemic and.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Alex, anyway. You may
1: continue.
2: Yeah. You may continue, Alex. Thank you for giving me permission. I appreciate it. Okay. So, uh, you can also find our episodes on filmtankshow.com. Uh, also, we are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, or any other place you can find a podcast. Like Spotify.
0: <laughs> like.
2: Like Spotify. Yeah. It's been such a struggle to remember that one. Uh, So coming up on our next episode, uh, going to go in a different mode. We've been doing, um, you know, even though we've been going back and forth, feel like we've done a little bit more, uh, you know, films that would be considered good here recently. Um, Although the, uh, (laughs) the Prince movie, not so much. Uh, And then next week though, um, I've decided Decided that I'd like us to do a new movie. Uh, And it's probably going to be terrible. Uh, And that is the Netflix uh, release that's coming out this weekend. Which is Chris Hemsworth uh, in the film Extraction. Uh, This looks at least to be entertaining. And even if it's mediocre, um, it hopefully should be fun. So look forward for that coming up on episode 228. Uh, Sam, as always, thank you for joining us. Uh, Even during these different times uh hopefully someday soon we'll be able to all get together and have a have a laugh and do an episode at the studio but it was great catching up with you uh in this little fun podcast hangout we have here
3: thanks it's been a treasure enjoying and uh your company for the time and being able to hear your beautiful voices again even if i can't see your your handsome faces for because of all this pandemic going on but that's fine it's it's been a a treasure
0: as it has talking to you as well yeah oh absolutely
3: oh thanks
2: (laughs) So from Sam, Nick Cheney, Tucson Egan, myself, Alex Diegmann, as always, thank you very much to everyone for listening to us here at Film Tank. We'll catch up with you next
0: time.
1: Yay!